Today in the podcast, Professor Askir Thomasgaard, and we will talk about the Norwegian energy transition. Askir is professor at NTNU in the Department of Industrial Economics and Technology Management. He's the director of the NTNU Energy Transition Initiative, and he is therefore the one that gave my producer Martin and me the slack to actually start this podcast. For the recording of this episode, I met him at Glosshagen Campus, where he has an office in the ninth floor of one of the main buildings. The view up there is pretty nice across the city of Trondheim. I won't say much now about the content of the episode because you will hear it in the first minute of the conversation that you're about to listen to. If you enjoy this podcast, I would appreciate if you would give it a five-star rating, either on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Now let's get started. Enjoy the show. It's an interesting challenge for a country because you're going to be a first mover in some areas. Other countries are dominating the technology development, for example, on battery electric vehicles. In other areas, you may hope that the Norwegian economy could get a boost from being a first mover, like in maritime transport, utilizing, for example, hydrogen or ammonia. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Antenu Energy Transition podcast. Antenu is based in Norway, and for that reason, we should obviously have a podcast session on the Norwegian energy transition. Norway is quite unique. It has abundant natural energy resources and a relatively small population, and it is uh, one of the largest energy exporters um, on the world, mostly oil and gas, and it is also one of the wealthiest countries on this planet. And what's very interesting, especially in the electricity sector here in Norway, is that most of the sector is already close to being decarbonized. And the electricity that is being used here and supplied and demanded is already new, renewable. However, with a lot of electrification in individual and passenger road transport in the future, and also many ferries will be needed to be electrified, there is quite some strain on the grids and also quite a lot of more green electricity will be required. And Apart from that, we also see that there's quite a lot of social resistance um, increasing here, for example, against wind farms. And so there will be a lot of trades off that need to be solved in the next years and decades. For example, between fighting across cultural heritage, preservation, but also uh, new energy plants, for example, uh, onshore wind, wind power plants, so wind turbines. And what we also see is that Norway has very ambitious emission reduction targets, but it's not really completely on track to actually reach them. And this is something that we want to talk about today in this episode. And I'm very happy to actually have one of the, yeah, a very knowledgeable person here um, to talk about all these topics. And he's professor at NTNU. He's, uh, yeah, the head of the NTNU Energy Transition Initiative. And I'm very glad that he takes the time today to have a chat with me about the Norwegian energy transition. So welcome to the podcast, Askir Thomasgaard. Thank you, Julius. A pleasure to be here. <laughs> cool. No, this is, it's like, it's been three quarters of a year since I started here and uh, Askir was very supportive of this project. So I'm very happy to actually have him today on the podcast. So what you will learn when you listen to this podcast is obviously, um, how is the energy sector in, in Norway uh, structured? What are the challenges in the uh, Norwegian energy transition? And then we'll have a little look at like what what uh, solar will play in the future, hydrogen will play in the future, and maybe also tip on um, the current developments in the North Sea and CCS. That's a lot of stuff to put in one episode, so let's get it started. But before we really start, I would like to ask you, Asker, who are you? Can you maybe just give a little bit of an introduction to yourself and what gets you up in the morning? 
So I'm a professor at NTNU in, in the topic of industrial economics and uh, technology management, working more, uh, more and more with energy over the years. But my background is as a specialist in optimization and techno-economic analysis. But over the years, I've been working more and more with, with large-scale energy systems, policy, and, uh, and also long-term decisions on, on how to design those, those kind of systems. How came that you actually switched your focus a little bit or like that you're doing so much energy-related uh, topics now? Well, what you noticed going back to maybe 2006, seven was that uh, there was going to be an energy transition and, and that the work that we had been doing on energy and natural gas uh, was still relevant, but there was more and more focus on, on actually doing serious work on integration between uh, renewables and the rest of the energy system. And we also noticed that uh, more and more there was need of analysis as a fundament for policy. And, and, and long-term decisions, both with private uh, decision makers in companies and, and also with policy makers in government. So we wanted to be able to serve decision makers better to, to have science-based uh, advice and science-based knowledge that those decision makers could, could base their work on. Yeah, this is really interesting because I feel in such a rather small country like Norway, there is, you know, how many people are in Norway? Five million, maybe? Around five million, five yes. mil Around five million. It's like it's there's not too many universities and NTNU is one of the main like technological universities. So then probably, you know, I guess, did they just come to you and find you or how did that work? Like, because we two are talking about advice, isn't it? So like, how how did they find you? Back yes, so, so what, we, what we did back then, and, and I'm very happy we did, we, we started looking around at uh, our own university, what kind of departments like uh, social sciences related departments, uh, more engineering related departments could contribute to, to collectively work on the energy transition, having sort of a, a, a common base to discuss the energy transition out of. And, and what we did was trying to consolidate these research groups into more active cooperation, doing the same nationally in, in national research centers, um, uh, establishing national research centers involving many of the large institutions. And, and when you do that, uh, I think you become more relevant for, for the decision makers as you come out with maybe not a joint advice between different research groups, but at least you address a more holistic picture uh, of the energy transition than, than we as individual groups yeah. could do. Yeah, and I guess now we're working here together in the Antenu Energy Transition Initiative, and that is actually one of these yeah initi initiatives to bring people together from different backgrounds, researchers from different backgrounds. So, when when did that happen? Why why does this this Antenu Energy Transition Initiative actually exist? Well, the story goes back to around 2008-9 when we established what we call um, um, a research center for um, uh, environmentally friendly energy in Norway, Census, and, and the second generation of that center, Entrance, that started. Uh, in 2018. In between, uh, we got some, um, some um, sponsors like uh, Equinor and Statkraft and Gasco that came and said we would like to sponsor an initiative which is long-term working on the fundament of the energy transition, increasing your capacity to do this. I think that was a direct consequence of the research center we established going back 10, 15 years, but also made it possible for us to, 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 to continue work on multidisciplinary energy transition work and established a new center uh, with a national focus entrance. So while the NTNU Energy Transition Initiative obviously tries to collect the forces at NTNU in different faculties and different research groups to jointly work on the energy transition and also uh, enhance international col collaboration on the topics, we have the Entrance Center, which is a national research center, which tries to do the same thing at the national level, bringing yeah. together relevant research yeah. groups. And that makes us... Uh, 
both more relevant as we have a more holistic approach to the transition. And it's also a lot more fun as we work together <laughs> with very interesting researchers yeah. in very different disciplines. Yeah. Yeah, and I, th I feel there's a lot of interesting people actually walking around here. And also there is this conference that is being organized every every year by uh, by the Antenna Energy Transition Initiative that's in the end of March 2022, I think is the next edition. Um, and so there will be also a lot of workshops. And um, so if, if you're listening to this podcast right now, um, please make sure to sign up and have a look at um, at that conference if there's any value that this might might give to you. So let's jump into the topics right now. So we know that Norway is a very fossil fuel fired economy. You could say it like that. Um, in Norway has about uh, the greenhouse gas emissions in Norway are about more or less 50 megatons of, uh, of CO2 equivalent. When you compare that, for example, to my home country, about 800 million, um, million tons, you could you could say 50 megatons is not that much. But since it's not that many people, it is uh, it is a relevant number and it's a relevant country. So could you just give us a little bit of an overview? How is this energy system structured in Norway? And maybe then we'll go into what are the challenges and what are the aims? Sure. And I, and I mean, we could start with the emissions because, I mean, the main, main idea about energy transition is, of course, to reduce emissions and yeah. get a clean energy system. So... In Norway, about one third of the emissions comes from the transport sector, maybe 20% or so from industry. And one third comes from actually the oil and gas production and export. Uh, and I think if you look at the energy produced in, in, in the Norwegian uh, energy system, uh, maybe the consumption that we have uh, on our own would be around 200 terawatt hours, while we export more than, slightly more than 2,000 terawatt hours in, ter in terms of natural gas. Just in comparison, the, all, the whole country of Germany, the whole electricity demand is 600 terawatt hours. Yeah. Just to, you said 2,000 terawatt hours is being exported. Yeah, and that's natural oil. gas and oil mainly yeah. being exported. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also some, some uh, electricity, of course, mm. but... From the hydropower, yeah. but uh, if you look at that, of course, you could say that um, being a large uh, exporter of natural gas and, and oil, of course, you could discuss the emissions that come in the end use. But of course, we see it as very important also to reduce the emissions that happen mm -hmm. during its production and uh, export phase, because that's, in fact, one third of Norwegian emissions. How does that happen? Like you say, one third comes from the exploration and use of oil, if, I'm, if I understood correctly. But where does that come from? Do they flare and do they burn gas on, on the North Sea? No, no, most, most, of, most of it would be uh, um, on running compressors offshore, uh, fueled on natural gas, for example, mm -hmm. to move the natural gas from uh, from Norway to, to Europe. And uh, by reducing emissions from, from that, uh, yeah. obviously the, the natural gas uh, export will be, be cleaner than before. And, and you have... Uh, Yeah, in, in like like in the rest of society, electrification plays an important role in re removing those uh, emissions uh, offshore. And in the long run, you could think that maybe that electricity could be produced locally from, for example, offshore wind. But at yeah. the moment, it's it needs to come from onshore uh, sources. Um, but if if you look at the Norwegian energy system. Uh, Apart from that, if you look at the households, uh, that's maybe, uh, let's say, the, the, the consumption that we have of energy in Norway uh, outside the oil and gas sector is like 200 terawatt hours. Maybe one quarter is the households, maybe one third is for industry, and, and maybe uh, another quarter is for, for transport. Mm -hmm. so, so, I mean, transport, industry, households, they are really, if you look at the Norwegian economy, the, the major uh, energy consuming sources and, and like you said uh, uh, when it's, it's in terms of electricity which is 130 terawatt hours so uh, 60 70 percent of, of our consumption 
it's very clean. It comes from hydropower mainly yeah. and some wind. Yeah. Let let's maybe just go through through these sectors in a, with a bit more detail. So when we start transport, um, there is there is this target in Norway to have all new cars, for example, that are being released to the market in 2025 to have them all electric. This is not currently, this is, it looks we're like, we're getting there, but it's not the case currently. But like, but this is only transport. So this is like, this is, um, this is personal transport, but there's also ferries and there's buses, then there is trucks, there is, um, there is uh, shipping. How, like, what are the opportunity, like, what are the options really to, to make these modes of transportation more like or to use renewable sources to 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 run them well i think it's important to understand why are we doing this and so early well it's because we want to reduce our emissions by 55 percent or more until 2030 and and, and like i mentioned maybe one third of these emissions are in the transport sector and the electricity sector is already clean so there are no emissions to to remove so basically to succeed with with meeting our climate objectives of 55 percent emission reductions we need to go to To transport and then it's interesting because that means in the next seven or eight years we're going to cut uh, maybe 55 of the emissions in the transport sector i don't think we have a choice if you're going to succeed with that then emissions from person vehicles needs to be around zero in 2030 yeah. well it will help of course if we sell only electric vehicles from 2025 mm -hmm. still we have a huge amount of combustion engines going so, yeah, so and cars can run for like 10 years maybe and if you yeah. still sell them in 2023 2024 then they still be around in 30 and say that some of these are still not zero emission then we need to start cutting emissions in heavy duty freight transport mm -hmm. uh, goods distribution and maritime transport mm -hmm. basically bringing us to How would you before 2030 maybe uh, reduce one-third of the emissions in heavy-duty freight transport on road? That's going to be a challenge. And I think we need a number of technologies to do yeah. that, like hydrogen, like uh, battery electric, like uh, biofuels. Mm -hmm. But we probably need to do the same thing in the maritime sector mm -hmm. and on the, in the road sector mm -hmm. at the same time. So let's see if we can succeed with that and if we can get some synergies between those two sectors but it's for sure it's for sure going to be challenging yeah yeah it's really i think this makes this this case of norway so so unique and so impressive or so interesting as well is that many other countries many other central european countries they're battling very much with decarbonizing their electricity sector and they know they have to do something in the transport sector and in, uh, in maritime for example but here this is already done and so now yeah norway could actually be a country that Yeah, like puts the flag up and say, yes, this is the way how it's possible. And then they hopefully maybe be a role model for other countries. But do you see that that's happening? Well, in the electric electricity sector, it's done. Let's see if it is done in 2030 in the transport sector. Yeah. But uh, it, it's an interesting challenge for a country because you're going to be a first mover. Right. In some areas, other countries are dominating the technology development. Mm for example, on battery electric uh, vehicles. Uh, in other areas, you might hope that the Norwegian economy could get a boost from being a first mover, like in maritime transport, utilizing, for example, hydrogen or mm. ammonia in, in, in the maritime transport. Yeah. So that, that could be like opportunities. Be yeah, because I feel when you look at the energy transition in Norway, you actually see that the whole business model of the whole country actually needs to transform because when you go out of oil and gas or like at least a little bit out of it then as you just said there need to be other opportunities that need to be explored and it's it's not a really large country where you can just build up another tesla for example but one example that came across my desk some days ago was that there's a lot of 
things happening in battery and battery recycling currently? Is that something where you would see that there's an opportunity there or do you think it's so minor that it's not really interesting really for on a national scale, I would say? Well, I would say battery uh, production and, and recycling as well is very interesting in a Norwegian perspective since we have a lot of clean electricity available, which gives us a competitive advantage in, in producing batteries. We have... Um, clean energy available and and uh, if you are able to tra translate that into what you could call sustainable battery production with circularity and and um, and, um, uh, and and not too heavy uh, environmental effects mm -hmm. i think that could be uh, an option for us if if you look at uh, the rest of our economy as you say it's it's fair to assume that uh, oil exports uh, over the next 30 years will be declining natural gas is interesting Uh, we don't know yet very much because it's connected very much to hydrogen. It's connected very much to hydrogen and carbon capture and storage. I think the two more dominating factors for natural gas would be, be uh, is hydrogen going to be a huge success in the markets? And is... Uh, These are topics that we'll cover as well in the next episodes, <laughs> to further down the road, obviously. Now we can only... Yeah. And, and carbon capture and storage would be the second most important factor, I think, yeah. for, uh, for natural gas. But also, of course, it's this obvious... Uh, fact that uh, if you look at the known resources in Norway around 2035, uh, uh, I, I think uh, we will, uh, to sustain natural gas exports or hydrogen exports based on natural gas, we would also need to, to find more natural gas. So it's not like it is okay. a resource that will last forever. I mean, uh, at, at the moment and for the next 10 years, our natural gas pipelines go at full capacity. Mm -hmm. But at some point, either natural gas as an export uh, product from Norway will be reduced. Mm -hmm. Uh, or uh, uh, more natural gas would be needed. And, and that opens a lot of uncertainty in terms of would there be a demand for hydrogen based on natural gas? Mm. Would there be a demand for natural gas and CCS? Mm. And and uh, I, I think that's also some important decisions for Norway to make. Yeah, because it's not, it's not very certain yet how it will look like, isn't it? And that's where a lot of decision making on the national level uh, will also be required. Yeah, it seems like at the moment the natural gas prices in Europe uh, makes natural gas as popular as it has ever been. Yeah. Uh, it's not sure that this will be for the next 10 years. But, but it uh, could also be that high prices lead to investments into other technologies because why would people be ready to pay these high prices for the next decades? Obviously, with, with prices like this, there is a lot of uh, different um, energy generation uh, technologies that become profitable. Yeah. <laughs> Asker, you said that there's so much renewable electricity around here because it's of hydro mostly but when we think about that we we want to decarbonize most of the transport that's going to be with electricity and then um, where's all that new electricity maybe coming from in the future is there does is there more potential for hydro or do we need to tap into other technologies and resources I think there is more potential for hydropower in Norway, but the reason it's not uh, exploited is that it's protected for environmental reasons. And, and most likely it will continue like that. I think you could see minor developments with, with new mm. hydro reservoirs being developed, but more likely the increase in capacity from hydropower will come from uh, closed tunnel systems where you pump hydro back into, mm. in, into reservoirs and we run closed mm. systems uh, without environmental impact. Uh, so this, that's an opportunity to increase capacity using... Mm this kind of, of technology by pumping water between reservoirs and, and, uh, and utilizing uh, cheap power from, from Europe and when the wind is blowing and the sun is shining to, to reuse the water yeah. in, in Norway. So be, But, uh, be a big battery kind of for, for Central Europe once the grids are yeah, developed yeah, and, enough. Uh, and, and it would increase the capacity of, of clean uh, electricity production in Norway. But then you 
also have, of course, uh, wind power resources, both onshore and offshore. As you mentioned earlier, it's not been without conflict, the onshore mm. wind development in, in Norway. And um, what, what are the conflicts, more or less, like little overview? Well, well, I think it's, it, the conflicts are real and important. Uh, it's about biodiversity, it's about protecting nature, uh, and it's about conflicting use of nature for commercial purposes like wind power, for other commercial uh, purposes that would need the same land area, and also for uh, recreational pur- purposes where people would like to see unspoiled nature. So these are real and important uh, objections towards using uh, land for... And apart even, th- and that's something I didn't know because before I came here, but also there's quite a, there's, there's, there's several minorities as well in Norway who have very strongly connected heritages with, yeah, unpro- unprotected land, uh, protected land, for example, is it the Sami that own a lot of uh, reindeer and these reindeer need a lot of place to herd and when there's wind farms, they are unlikely to less likely go there. Yeah, and, and this goes on the bio- diversity and also conflicting interests yeah. in terms yeah. of commercial utilization yeah. and, and obviously something that uh, mm. needs to be handled in, in a better way than it has been over the last 10 years. One option that's very often I feel in the discussion here very much is, is this thing offshore wind energy. What, what, what's the status there um, and what do you th- what kind of potential do you see there for, yeah, for the energy transition over the next maybe, 10 to 15 years? Yeah, so I, I would say that if you look outside the coast of Norway and the North Sea and, and also between the, the North Sea countries, it's, it's probably some of the more important renewable resources that uh, Europe has available. Mm-hmm. If you look at the EU ambition to develop um, uh, floating wind and, and offshore wind, you might find something like uh, 400 gigawatt of offshore wind there in 2050. As, as a comparison, the Norwegian hydropower system is 30 gigawatt. Yeah, as a comparison, the German solar system is 50 gigawatt yeah and it's been going on for 20 25 years now yeah and and uh, historically over the last few years maybe you built one to two gigawatts of offshore wind mm. every year so you see this is an industrial scale up that's that, like uh, that is <laughs> that's really, a lot of needed yeah and, and again in this process of course you would need to look into protection of nature conflicting interests and biodiversity again but the alternative would be to develop this wind power onshore in Europe. And I don't think that would be any easier. So I, I think uh, looking, at, looking at it from, from this perspective, this is a huge opportunity for Europe and it's a huge opportunity for the North Sea countries uh, to develop what I would say would be a different scale of, of industry when it comes to offshore wind. You would need to increase from 2-3 gigawatts per year to, to 20-30 gigawatts yeah. per year of installed capacity. And that needs to happen in a sustainable way. And quickly, isn't it? Because like now, it's always easy to put out great goals and say, we do that until 15 years from now. But do you see that this innovation system around offshore and floating energy is really picking up? Well, or sufficiently to, picking up? Let's, let's go I think there's a number of issues that needs to be dealt with. One, you need to uh, uh, increase the capacity in education and research in order to support this. Uh, in, a, in a recent report uh, that Sintafan Antenu made, I think we said you need to increase this fivefold. Is that the one that you presented at uh, COP26? Indeed, in Glasgow, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah. yes. And, and at the same time, you need to make this an industrial scale-up that is sustainable. I think you need to look at circularity, how to reuse materials. You need to look at how to, to um, uh, not do harm to, to nature and, 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 um, and respect biodiversity in, in doing this. But at the same time, you're maybe going to do, do an industrial scale-up that goes, uh, increases the, 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 the speed tenfold. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, obviously, to succeed with this, you also need to reduce the costs. 
Yeah, yeah. But costs always go down. The question is if they go down quickly enough, isn't it? Because if whatever you do, when you do it 10 times or 100 times, cost goes down. The question is if, it, if it's yeah. fast enough. Yeah, so, so what leading industrial players are saying these days is that in 2030, they assume that the cost of building floating offshore wind would be the, 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 the price of electricity. So you would be competitive without subsidies, hopefully, in so 2030. So that would be between three and eight euro cents per kilowatt hour? Or like because in that, in that, in that area? Like yeah, because yeah, that's, that's what current... Like, Coal, I think, in Germany at least, is between three and four cents per kilowatt hour. Um, so I guess coal is being phased out, but still, I think that's maybe the range that wind offshore needs to needs to needs to manage. But yeah, all right. One thing we you know we tend to forget, or like we talk about very often about um, scaling up new technologies. But there's one thing that we can actually do in order to that actually prevents us or helps us to not have to scale up so much, and that's energy efficiency. And what I found interesting when I came to Norway is that all how most houses here are heated with electricity, but I feel that the level of insulation, for example, is very poor in many of the buildings. And I was wondering if you could tell me why this is the case, and and do you see that also? For example, the Norwegian government is actually thinking about increasing uh, housing codes and all to, to make sure that all this precious energy that we're having is not just wasted, particularly in the in the building sector. Yeah, so you could say this has developed tremendously over the last 20 years. So the current building regulation is such that the insulation levels are... are Uh, very good and, and very efficient. But that's just for new buildings, correct? For new buildings. Yeah. And, and then if you look back, maybe you used to have 10 centimeters of insulation where you today have 25 or 30 centimeters of insulation. Yeah. And, and obviously, to do, to do something with that, you need to invest. And uh, I think we will see increased incentive to do this kind of investments in, in more insulation, better windows. Uh, of course, we had renovation like that going on for the last 10, 20 years as well. But... If you look at electricity prices over the last 10, 20 years, they haven't really been motivating this yeah, kind yeah. of energy efficiency. What's the case? So the, so the electricity prices in Norway are like record lows, I guess, in all of Europe. Could you say that? And that's Traditionally, they have been yeah. much lower than the rest of Europe. But you will see, I think, an increase in electricity prices also in Norway as electrification uh, uh, goes on. Mm. And... Uh, And uh, I think electricity will be a more valuable resource in years to come. And, and that also increases motivation to invest in uh, energy efficiency. Yeah. And, and still a lot has been done in energy efficiency in Norway. But, but you're right, uh, mm -hmm. considering the cold climate, more could be done. Yeah, I, I was just a bit, not, not puzzled, but I, it was interesting to see because I had been to Finland some years ago, five, ten years ago maybe. And there I had the feeling there was like, It was just like single windows, but like four times, like how do you call it? double, not, but not double windows, but like, like really thick ones and really well insulated. And when I came here, which is a country, which is, yeah, this, yeah, well, it's also a Northern Scandinavian country. I didn't, I don't find it. And that's, I found that very interesting. But yeah. And in, in, in most new buildings, of course, you have a double and triple insulated yeah. windows. You have plenty of insulation, but there's a lot of houses built in cities in Norway in, in the thirties and, and until the 60s, 70s. Yeah. And, and uh, of course, then you will find uh, poor insulation compared. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think you're right. More should be done on also this area. Yeah. I'm just like, I'm just an outsider having some interesting experiences here, but yeah. And one other thing that I find interesting here is that there's a lot of like, I don't want to call them communal houses, but here the word is Buritzlag. And that is that there's a lot of, that you, it's like a cooperative and you buy a share in the cooperative and then you live in a, in a place that you don't own, but you own a share and that gives you the right to live in that place. And um, obviously when you have single houses, then it's the single household 
members who can decide if they want to put insulation in there. But if you live in such a Bundeslag with, I don't know, 20 other families or maybe 100 other families, it's probably also harder to actually decide whether this is a good thing and because then in the whole boot it's like it needs to be done and maybe that also has an impact on the on the acceleration it's, speed. It's a good question. Maybe we should check if someone has done research on that. Yeah, if I was it makes it easier or more yeah. difficult because in some cases it could also make it easier when you have because, a joint effort. Obviously because if all houses are very similar then you have to bring in some installers and tell them this is the, this is the house and we've got 40 of them. So if you check out one, if you check... How a solution for this particular house, you can like, uh, how do you call it? You multiply it or you 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 how do you, um, you copy it 50 times and that's probably bringing down uh, yeah, the cost as well to, to do that. So I was just wondering about that. So obviously one of the, the two main current resources here are oil and gas. And then we talked about wind as well, onshore, offshore. One thing that has been obviously very... Um, very very much part of a, the solution in many southern or central like countries around like in central europe but also around the, the globe is is solar and obviously in norway in the summer there's a lot of sun in the winter there's no sun but what is the role of solar in 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 the energy transition here is there a role is it very small or is it what do you see in the next years here to come Yeah, it's a good question, and I think it depends very much on electricity prices on one side. On the other hand, it depends on how well will solar panels be integrated with building materials. For example, in a country like Norway, um, rough climate, you need high-quality roofs, mm-hmm. waterproof and solid, and, and also... Um, also uh, being able to withstand natural forces like uh, wind and rain. And if you could successfully would be able to integrate solar panels in, in roof materials, like many people do at the moment, and make that at a competitive price. Mm. Well, every 20, 30 years, Norwegians need to change their roof. Yeah. And if that would be done at a competitive price with this kind of solar panels, uh, even if you could say that the solar panels themselves would not motivate uh, installing solar panels uh, the need of a new roof could yeah And, uh, so then every 30 years you have this window of opportunity I guess and it just you need proper Uh, policy to actually incentivize that. Yeah, and, and for me, this is, is is a huge window of opportunity. I don't think there will be too much clean electricity in Europe. So if you mm-hmm. could, in a country like Norway, actually yeah. get some synergies between uh, using uh, new, more advanced building materials and solar panels, I think that that would be the most important use. I guess also, normally when you look at a country, you look at it the holistically, but maybe Norway, since it's just a, such a stretched country, maybe, yeah, solar potentials are probably quite quite higher in the south of Norway than actually in the north of Norway. Um, so maybe we'll also see them some development there that maybe in the long run in the south there will be more diffusion of solar than in the north. I'm not sure, but that could be. Yeah, but it depends also on, on how it integrates with the European energy system. You could say that uh, if, if you look at... Uh, Generation profiles from solar in Europe, you see some small bumps in the middle of the dive and yeah, solar production sure. kicks in. In Norway, in summer, you won't see those small bumps. You will see a very steady uh, generation yeah. of solar power during the dive. And the further north you go, the more steady this generation will be. Of course, in winter, Nothing. the story is different. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Not so much. But, but it's yeah. all about how well does this integrate with the rest of the European yeah. power system. Yeah. Um, so we're actually we're not coming right to the end, but we're approaching it towards it. But there's this topic, and then we just already touched about it very shortly. But this topic of hydrogen. So what what's so hot about hydrogen, and how can like how will the case of hydrogen um, be be influential on the energy transition here in Norway? 
maybe uh, the reason why it's um, uh, so much up on the agenda is you need to decarbonize industry, you need to decarbonize transport, you need to do some sector coupling between heat and electricity and yeah. hydrogen for high temperature heat, for example, could be a very important fuel to produce um, high temperature heat. Mm. Uh, because currently high temperature heat is very often used, coal is used, I think, and what else? Like yeah. fossil fuels for Fossil fuels, for coal, sure. yeah. And, and, and you need to clean up these, these industries, you need to clean up the transport sector, you need to, uh, you need basically uh, some kind of fuel that would be uh, possible to store. Electricity is nice, but it's not that easy to store. And it's very uh, heavy to store these batteries. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. Uh, and 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 you need uh, something that uh, that links up well with the rest of the energy system. And 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 I think the main advantage of hydrogen is that it could be used in uh, well, it could be used as a fuel uh, in many different used, sectors, uh, isn't it? Yeah, and 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 it could be could be used in industry, it could be used in transport, it could be used um, to produce heat. And um, so transport could be could be shipping could also be heavy duty trucks i guess what 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 other uh, i think there are work on on aviation as well but if you if you look at yeah. hydrogen and 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 the product uh, ammonia that could be produced from hydrogen you you would see that um, that there is an increasing number of of use cases and uh, I, i think the main challenge will be how do you build the supply side and how do you build the demand side at the same time mm. because like every other commodity it costs money to produce hydrogen. And if you build facilities to produce hydrogen, you really would like to have customers for your volumes. And at the, nice. time, then, yeah, nice. <laughs> at the same time, then you need to build up the supply side and the demand side. And I think that might be the most important role for governments in supporting this would be to support coordinated building of these value chains with both the supply and demand side. And uh, Especially since we don't have renewable hydrogen ready in two years or three years but the but uh, new furnaces maybe are being built and they already need to be ready to be using hydrogen and maybe then they have to use non non uh, non uh, renewable hydrogen isn't it well if you want to be successful with hydrogen you need to really increase the volumes and, and if you want to increase the volumes i don't think you can avoid using at least for a transition natural gas and carbon capture and storage mm. to produce hydrogen and, and the reason is It's fairly simple. I don't think we have too much clean electricity in Europe. And, uh, I do, think we <laughs> Askier, do we not? Ask you, do we not? And I think that will be even more difficult to provide all this clean uh, electricity over the next uh, 30 years. And, and uh, I think the, the natural gas, CCS, uh, value chains will play a, a major role if hydrogen is to be the, the, the solution. Because very often I feel that hydrogen is like, at least in some parts of the news media, it's like seen as the silver bullet that will solve it all. Why is hydrogen not the silver bullet? Well, what has prevented it from from uh, from uh, entering the market before is price. The price needs to go down. Uh, it needs to be transported. Uh, it needs to be distributed, mm -hmm. and it needs to be included into the end use sector. So, in some cases, you need to change industrial processes. In other cases, you need to change the distribution systems. You need to have filling stations for cars. Mm -hmm. So, you need to build expensive infrastructure. And I think if you look at person vehicles, battery electric is more uh, likely more to become the solution. Yeah. Uh, so, so you cannot use it everywhere, mm -hmm. but in some cases uh, you might not uh, be able to succeed with energy transition without it. And maritime transport might be one of these uh, areas where, well, at least if you if you are moving. Uh, uh, 
well, to, today we are using battery electric ferries, so they work very well over a fjord. If you want to go longer distances along the coast, you will probably need uh, hydrogen else. to do it or yeah. improve battery technologies. Yeah. And, and you find the same... Uh, if, if you look at industrial processes, uh, in some cases, hydrogen might be uh, the solution. In other cases, electrification coming f- from other sources might be the yeah. solution. Because it's just not very efficient to produce hydrogen from, from renewable uh, electricity, isn't it? So the question is like, as you just said, it's, uh, you could also use renewable electricity right away in battery electric cars. And if that's more efficient, then that's the way to go. And then, but then the question is like, where do, does hydrogen apply? And I think that's one of the key questions. Yeah, there's little that beats using electricity directly when it can be applied and you have it available. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the last topic, major topic I want to touch upon is CCS. Um, what, is, what is CCS and why is CCS such a topic in, in Norway? Well, um, I, I think uh, if you look at what is CCS, uh, well, if you burn fossil fuels, you will get exhaust. In that exhaust, yeah. CO2 is a main ingredient. And, and you would like to capture that CO2 and transport it to somewhere where it can be stored permanently. Mm-hmm. So that's carbon capture and storage. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's very important for many reasons. One reason is it would allow a prolonged use of fossil fuels like natural gas. Mm-hmm. So until we have enough clean electricity coming from renewables, it would allow fossil fuels to be a support for the system mm-hmm. if you're able to capture this CO2 and store it permanently. Do you think that if, if, if Norway would invest much more in C- carbon capture and storage, would that decrease the diffusion of other renewable energies? Because you just said CCS is a way to support maybe up until we have enough electricity, but could it also be that, you know, some uh, actors would then say, yeah, we have CCS, we don't need the renewables. Well, it depends on your time horizon. If you look at uh, all the, the the climate scenarios or pathways that would bring us to the one and a half degree society, yeah. Almost all of them assume negative emissions from 2035, 2040. That would mean you would need technologies to capture CO2 from exhaust gas or from the atmosphere directly mm-hmm. and store it permanently. Yeah. So you would need the negative emissions. Uh, and um, uh, of course, the only way we know how to do that is by by um, by either modifying our ecosystems so mm-hmm. that the nitrogen itself can absorb more uh, CO2 or uh, we need to capture it and store it uh, permanently. And and I think that makes CCS probably a necessary part of the long-term or or mid-term solution. Will it be needed eternally? Probably not. Mm -hmm. Probably in in the next 100 years, we'll find ways of dealing with energy without having to Mm -hmm. uh, capture CO2 from exhaust gases or similar ways and and storing it. But uh, in the energy transition, it's very difficult to see how to avoid it. If, if you would say we could do this by changing lifestyle or uh, changing the way we demand energy, probably you would need to reduce uh, global energy demand by 30% before 2030 mm. in order to succeed with alternative yeah. scenarios. And that's a and, tricky and that, thing. And that's do. very tricky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Asker, now we l- zoom out and I have this, this last more like an advisory question for you. And so in Norway, there has been just a new government being instated. Um, the new prime minister, I think is his title, is called Störe. Mm-hmm. Um, and this gentleman has yeah taken over not just 
the Norwegian government, but obviously also these new challenges that we are having in the energy transition. So what would be your maybe one, two or three points that you think is most important for the Norwegian government to tackle yeah, within maybe, let's say, the next one, one year? Like what are the more, most urgent things from your perspective that need to be addressed? So if you look at our ambition to reduce uh, climate emissions, uh, transport sector is going to be key for Norway. And we are not uh, on a route to reduce emissions in the transport sector by 50 to 55% before 2030. So there would be dramatic needs for support of for incentives. achieving the, for yeah. incentives, yeah. Uh, for example, building hydrogen value chains for, for maritime transport, maybe heavy duty transport as well. But but. We are not on a pathway in the transport sector that would make it possible to reduce emissions by 50 to 55 percent. Yeah. That's what is needed if you're going to meet our climate obligations. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, like you mentioned earlier, we need to produce more clean electricity in Norway and in Europe. And uh, considering the North Sea, I think some of the best wind resources in Europe are uh, in the Norwegian part of the North Sea. Mm -hmm. To succeed with... with uh, With developing that, we would need a very good cooperation with other North Sea countries in terms of uh, infrastructure, like an offshore grid jointly shared between the North Sea countries, mm -hmm. and, and also regulation and environmental discussions. So, so that, that would bring us uh, into North Sea cooperation on developing mm -hmm. clean electricity offshore. Mm -hmm. And then if you look at the, the last part, which is the Norwegian uh, oil and gas production, uh, I think... Uh, If, if you look at the 15 million tons that we, we have uh, of emissions from that on the Norwegian continental shelf, uh, if you're going to succeed with reducing Norwegian emissions, something needs to be done with those. And, uh, and, and maybe that should be seen linked up to uh, building a lot of renewable electricity in the North Sea as well. All right. Asgir, thanks for joining me today for the podcast. I hope you had a little bit of fun. And if, you, if people would like to contact you, how would they find you? Oscar Tomaskar at Antianu. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll do that. I'll put the, the email address also into the into the show notes. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks a lot.